Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Azam Ahmed, author of the new book, Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and A Mother's Quest for Vengeance. Uh, Azam, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me. Congratulations uh, on the new book. It, it is a grim tale. So who were this tragic mother and daughter? Miriam Rodriguez was a mother of three. She sold cowboy hats and boots in the market of a small town right on the border with the United States. Her daughter, her youngest, was named Karen. And in 2014, she was kidnapped by one of the most violent cartels in Mexico. Her mother, Miriam, paid bribes, did everything the cartel asked, and still did not get her daughter back. And so she went to the authorities asking for help. The police and later prosecutors and basically got nothing in return and sort of broke with love is the way I usually put it and decided that she was going to go after these individuals herself and begin a painstaking effort to investigate who they were, locate them, and then build alliances with both the Mexican Marines and law enforcement to take down nine of them, have nine of them arrested, and then six of them actually were killed in a firefight with the Marines, thanks to the efforts of Miriam. Yeah, one of the things that is really striking uh, reading this book is that, you know, we clearly are looking at a war zone here, that the cartels in Mexico, you make the point early on, they, they behave almost like occupying armies. That's right. So this particular cartel is unique for a number of reasons. It began around the 1920s as a loose alliance of smugglers who ironically were smuggling alcohol into the United States during Prohibition. And through various leaderships, iterated into what they ultimately became, which is the Setas. And at various phases, this cartel kind of evolved to represent what cartels were becoming in Mexico. So initially, they became hyper-organized smugglers. Then they, they transitioned from, you know, contraband to drugs, to cocaine in the 80s. And then from there, uh, a new leader in the late 90s decided that the new sort of dynamic of governance in Mexico was such that cartels kind of had the upper hand. There had been one dominant political party in Mexico for almost 70 years, but as that dynasty began to fall apart, there was an inversion. And it went from being a state run by the government in this one particular party to sort of a free-for-all. And in that free-for-all, this cartel leader realized that violence was the new currency of power and that if he could be the most violent and decisively violent cartel, he could dominate. And so he recruited military, former special forces, actually active special forces from the Mexican military and made them initially his Praetorian Guard. So when we talk about an occupying force, we mean it quite literally. These were military henchmen who had been trained in weapons and counterintelligence, all kinds of things that your traditional cartel had never had before, thus militarizing the violence and thereby uh, becoming occupying forces in the places where this cartel dominated. Yeah, and this uh, this town uh, where your two principal characters come from, San Fernando, it became almost the kind of ground zero for this battle between the government's war on drugs and the efforts of these cartels. That's exactly right. This is a town that's an hour and a half drive from the Texas border and has the geographic misfortune of being a center point of multiple highways running to the U.S. border through the state of Tamaulipas, which shares a border with Texas. So it has always been a heavily trafficked area, an area where contraband all the way back to the 18th century was being smuggled into the United States. Now, you rightly say this sort of battle 
of the cartels, San Fernando was ground zero. And the reason that is, is the Setas, this sort of former military guys that I explained a second ago, they were originally the armed wing of another cartel known as the Gulf Cartel. And that was the cartel whose origins date back all the way to the 1920s. But it wasn't until the late 1990s when the leader of this cartel decided, as I had said before, we need to have a more fearsome, uh, determinative military force on our side to kind of be our armed wing. And that worked until about 2010, when this armed wing, known as the Setas, broke off from the Gulf Cartel, which sparked a war between them. And it was sort of a sibling rivalry, so it was extraordinarily violent. And they were fighting over terrain in Tamaulipas. And because San Fernando was geographically located at the most important smuggling chokehold in the entire state, that became the place that was most hotly contested. Because if you wanted to get anything from central Mexico or Colombia or anywhere else to the border in Tamaulipas, you had to route it through San Fernando. So whoever controlled that controlled essentially the lifeline for the, the resources that the cartel generated by smuggling drugs into the United States. So the Gulf Cartel and the Setas basically launched a scorched earth campaign to control that. And ultimately the Setas ended up winning, which meant a, a hellish existence for the people who lived in this town, which is literally a town of about 30,000. Yeah, one of the the really unsettling, destabilizing uh, aspects of reading this book that I found as a reader is that uh, you almost don't know what your response is supposed to be. For example, uh, you might think of this as a kind of a classic good versus evil kind of situation, and yet you can see that the military's efforts to destroy the cartels often have disastrous results in this place, and with innocence, as usual, caught in the middle. I think that was one of the ambitions of this book, was not to tell a story of black and white, but to show the actual complexity of resolving something like this. And more than prescribe cheap protocols or ideas of how to fix this, more to bear witness. This is what life is like for the people living on the front lines, these innocents that you're talking about trapped in the middle of an intransigent cartel force and a government using extraordinarily blunt and violent measures to combat it. And the irony is, when this cartel decided to hire, or when this leader decided to hire former Special Forces soldiers, the government felt it had no choice but to militarize its own response to combat it. Thus, the things that you see today, the extraordinary violence that you see in Mexico, the use of military-grade weapons, the kind of proficiency that cartels have at executing violence and other kinds of destabilizing efforts, and the government's you know, failing attempts to combat it by meeting it with violence, which as we've seen over the last... 20 years has done nothing but bring more violence and more suffering to the people of Mexico. And it's not just the military either. You show in kind of great detail how the Mexican justice system is inefficient, uh, there's corruption, it, it struggles to deal with all of these kind of issues. And so it means that very often, as in the, uh, the case of uh, Miriam, that families of murder victims are simply left to fend for themselves or rather to find justice. Uh, for themselves and, and those who've been killed. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most tragic components of a failed rule of law. You know, I, I wouldn't call Mexico a failed state. What I refer to it as in the book is a truant state, a state that is utterly absent when it should be there for its people. And the ambition of this book, as I was saying before, was, was not just to delineate and show in great detail what was happening, but to really answer a question that for me as a bureau chief and correspondent in Mexico for years was a, was a puzzling quagmire, which is how did it get to be this way? What was it that made Mexico become so broken? 
what do we have to trace back to? You know, I'd written countless stories about the symptoms of this disease, but I'd never written about the origins of it. And what the story of Miriam and Karen allowed me to do was to use this particular cartel, the Setas, who had kidnapped and ultimately killed her daughter, and trace them all the way back to the 1920s to try and understand at what point it was that the state became complicit and inept at combating organized crime. And so one of the things that I think most devastated me as a reader is looking at the fact that there is no alternative solution for the moment for the government to combat these groups. During the, the years where this one dominant party kind of ruled Mexico post-revolution, the state was almost like a, a partner in organized crime, in the smuggling. But because they were so powerful and predominant, they kind of governed and dictated the terms of the arrangement. But as I mentioned, in the early 2000s, when democracy actually came to Mexico and this predominant party lost, suddenly you lost any command and control that the state once had. And it was in that space that the cartels surged, the inversion that I spoke about. But more importantly, over the course of the past 70 years, law enforcement had been completely debilitated and unable to marshal the resources or effectiveness to combat organized crime because they were a part of organized crime. Thereby, you have this war, you have this conflict, and even when the state wants to combat it, the only tool they have at their disposal is the military, which is ultra-violent, because the judicial system has been completely bankrupted, you know, for the last 80 years. And so she goes to all of these people and they don't, they can't do anything for her. Yeah, and, and it's one of the points that you make, this, this kind of juxtaposition of a change politically but unleashing a kind of violence which, uh, you say in the book, staggered even the regular cartel watchers that, uh, with the, the paramilitary wings that go to war with each other, this is an unprecedented level of violence for, for Mexico, modern Mexico. You, you look at what happens when violence and impunity are left unchecked, and there's a degradation and a downward spiral that ultimately leads to the dehumanization of everyone, combatants, civilians, anyone who's in the way, because the most important thing is primacy and the language that's understood, the currency of power is violence. And so you have new and pioneering ways of inflicting and showing violence and violence becomes a spectacle. The idea is to terrify one's enemies, which are these horrible ISIS style executions that, you know, that freeze populations and, and leave people feeling like they are in occupied territory. But the simple fact that as a business, it's their marketing, as dark as that sounds. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's shocking. I mean, beheadings, bodies dissolved in vats of acid, prisoners forced to fight each other to death. I mean, some of the details uh, in this book truly are horrific and shocking. Yeah, I mean, I myself found them quite disturbing. But also, I didn't want to be gratuitous, but I did want to leave the reader with a sense of what's happening. I didn't want to soft pedal it either. I thought, if you're going to read this book, if you're going to follow this extraordinary journey of a woman's quest to combat a dysfunctional system in an ultra-violent force of nature in some, in some ways on the other side, you should understand what they're up against. We, we talk a lot about American foreign policy and the war on drugs from the U.S. side, but these are the people living on the front lines. These are the innocent victims who get swept up in American drug demand, in calcified U.S. foreign policy that sees one way forward and a dysfunctional Mexican state incapable of even implementing it. And I, I said before, I wanted to bear witness. I didn't want to give prognostications or theses on what might work. I just wanted people to see it and understand this is what the reality is like. 
and and I think it's one of the reasons why your two principal characters, Miriam and Karen, are are, are so interesting because they follow that arc in some ways. That it is very it was very striking to me just actually how ordinary and uh, I'm going to use the word just nice uh, Karen's upbringing for a lot of her early life was that you know this this was a, a nice place to live. Her her parents were uh, shopkeepers, I think, and. So th there was just a, a sense of this ordinary person living a, an ordinary everyday life until till this place becomes consumed uh, by violence and, and the worst kind of nightmare that any community can really imagine. I think, I think that's a very important point, the suddenness with which this could happen when, you know, the constraints are lifted and when unbridled violence is allowed to fester when the rule of law is not implemented, when there is no optionality for people to seek from their government some sort of order, these kinds of things happen. And it's not just Mexico. I mean, these are the sorts of things we've seen all over the world, including at times in the United States. But the, the real, I think, tragedy of it is it's quite easy from a distance to simplify and say, well, you know, it's just a messed up place with messed up people. And that's why I, I wanted to show who Miriam and Karen were, I, I spent so much time trying to get into their worlds and understand like what a young, you know, distraught, rebellious teen might look like after her parents decide to separate. What a mother who is just haunted by the absolute worst thing that could happen to you is forced to do. There, there is a world, there are many worlds, in fact, almost all of the worlds where none of this would have happened to them, but they weren't lucky enough to be born into those worlds. And what arrived at their doorstep was this hyperviolence that was generated from far away that visited on their, you know, on their small town and meant that ordinary rebellious behavior that, you know, kids grow out of instead are quite deadly. And that a mother's quest to seek vengeance for her daughter ultimately wind up with that mother being killed by the very same cartel that took her daughter. And, and how usual is it for a family to go after the cartels in the way that, uh, that Miriam did? It's exceedingly rare to the degree that she did. There are 100,000 disappeared in Mexico. I mean, just think about that number for a second. That's actual individuals disappeared. If you just count their parents alone, you're talking about 300,000 people affected and then siblings, et cetera. There could be easily a million people just living in this state of deep and despondent trauma, so much so that they form collectives. Because the government disinterest is so high, they have formed collectives of the disappeared families who argue and, and lobby the government for resources and for help. But most of those people are simply looking to find where their children are. When you get disappeared, it's part of the war continuum. If I disappear a body, there is no crime. And it became also an ultra cruel way to inflict violence on victims. If your enemy has done something to you, has killed one of your friends or destroyed your neighborhood, the worst thing you can do is take them and disappear them because you leave the family and their loved ones living in the state of haunting uncertainty. They don't know what happened to them. And they're sort of poisoned by the hope that they might still be alive. Most people just want to resolve that question. Where is my loved one? Can I bury them? Can I have somewhere to mourn, a physical anchor to my bereavement? Very few decide to go beyond that and go after the people responsible because they know how dangerous it is. And initially, she's very much working alone, but but she then does work in, hand in hand with the government. There's a there's a story in the book of 
uh, where she's working uh, with the Marines or, or, or is helping the Marines when they, they have a raid, which is, is successful. So she kind of occupies this, this interesting position between vigilante violence, but also then working with the state to try and uh, bring down or curb the, the cartels. That's exactly right. There's a moment where she realizes, as bankrupt as the system is, it is still a system. It still has, you know, the capacity to arrest and imprison and investigate, and she needs it. And so through sheer force of will, she kind of takes this calcified system and forces its gears into motion such that once she's done enough research and made her case undeniable and is handing this research over to people whose jobs and responsibilities are to do the research she's done for them, they have no choice but to act. And as that happens, more and more people kind of come onto her side. Everybody likes a winner. And people couldn't fail but to be compelled by her story and her case. She made it real for people that are so numbed to violence because they see it with such regularity. There's almost a despondence and a hopelessness within law enforcement. How do you combat this, you know, inexorable force of cartel violence? And the answer is, in some ways, the story of one woman and the way in which she was fearless and went after it. It inspired others to help her in spite of themselves. Yeah. And, and as you say, I mean, it would be very easy to see this story in, in black and white terms that, you know, he is Miriam as the equalizer, if you like. But, but the story that you paint is, is actually quite a complicated one that, on the one hand, it's very clear that she is an incredible woman. And I think any parent would recognize her ferocious bravery to avenge her daughter. But on the other hand, the story is not necessarily one of admiration for you. So it's a complex legacy that she leaves. I think that's right. I mean, I didn't want to do the cheap and easy story. And, you know, I think there was an early moment when I started to realize that she was a complicated character, not a bad person, just like any of us, complicated. And your initial instinct is, oh, no, what's this going to make the reader think? And then it was more like, actually, every novel, every book that I've ever loved has complicated humans at the center of it. And in some ways, it makes it that much more rich and believable that she is someone who struggled with the idea of, you know, is the world better off if the Marines just kill these people? She is someone who struggled with the power and influence that she was able to obtain simply by being a grieving mother and actually doing what no one else was willing to do. And how does one balance that, their social responsibility with this burning desire to seek vengeance for having the most important thing in their life taken from them? Now, as you, you said earlier, there's an American uh, aspect uh, to this story as well. And certainly, as I was reading, I was, I was very taken by how tied in the story is to two very powerful political issues, particularly in an election year, uh, the opioid crisis and the southern border crisis. What, what do you think that the story that you've told brings to those debates? What I hope it brings to those debates are the facts on the ground that so often elude policymakers when they're saber-rattling or even when they're in good faith talking about policy prescriptions. What are people running from? What does our fire and brimstone approach to drug trafficking bring? More importantly, what does it bring to people outside of the United States borders? What are we responsible for with our policy that is super punitive and it just goes after supply? You know, what, what havoc are we wreaking and do we own, you know, what do we have to answer for beyond our borders? And what does that look like? And so when Republican candidates talk about sending in the special forces to Mexico, 
The point is, I got news for you. That war has been happening since 2006, and meeting violence with violence has only created more violence and led to more overdose deaths in the United States. If you start from the Mexican war on drugs in 2006, a war announced by a Mexican president, but heavily encouraged by the United States, from that point until today, the trend line is so clear. It has only gone up in terms of homicide deaths that are drug-related in Mexico and overdose deaths in the United States. I don't know a clearer way to show a failure of policy than that. But what I don't think people realize is these are humans at the end of the day, people who, you know, mothers who love their children, children who are dealing with like the tragedy of youth and puberty and the anxiety of separated parents. These aren't data points in, in a trend line. They are real lives affected by real decisions made by our policymakers and Mexican policymakers. And I wanted to confront the reader with an indisputable rendition of that. But some policymakers have also said that if the situation is as bad as the one that you've described in great detail, and the answer is not to send in special forces, is the answer then to seal the problem off, to seal the border? I think we've seen that every time we try and seal the problem off, it, it doesn't work. I don't think that abolishment solves anything. It's like banning books. It doesn't work. People will find ways to get around it, find ways to, to pursue, because you're not talking about a low stakes game here. What you are talking about, I mean, it's very easy to say, well, if they're violent, we can be more violent. But you don't do that. I mean, you talk about Mexico and the idea of sending in the special forces. Well, I have a few examples at hand of places where we have sent in the special forces and it didn't go so well for us, despite our superior firepower, despite our superior technology, despite whatever we thought to be the righteousness of our cause. And exhibit A of that is Afghanistan. You have Iraq right beside it to show you the sort of twin, twin faces of American failure where military might did not solve the problem. In Afghanistan, the United States went in to rid the country of a group that has 20 years later reclaimed power. Again, it's, there's an echo. It's like the, the failure of violence to meet these sort of political and social problems, especially in a place like Mexico. You're not going to just knock these people out because you have an incredibly lucrative product and an insatiable demand north of the border. You will always have someone who is willing to distribute that product because it's always going to be lucrative until a new dynamic or a new way of looking at it is, is landed on. What about the, um, the way in which Mexico fits into the broader region of Central and, and South America? The, we've seen uh, headlines uh, in the news recently about what's going on in Ecuador. Uh, there's also stories about what's going on in Colombia with the death of many Americans um, in, in Medellin, for example. Um, and, and also stories about uh, drugs coming out of uh, Brazil and the way in which cartels are kind of spreading. Give us some sense of what this looks like in terms of the bigger picture. I think the bigger picture is we're, we're fighting a battle to prevent something that, in spite of all of our efforts, has changed and metastasized and modified to produce a product to a society that wants said product. And it will move around from place to place, finding pockets where there is permissiveness, whether it's intentional or whether it's just a lack of rule of law. In other words, I think the approach of 
punitive measurements and violent measures to combat and tackle this has shown time and again that it doesn't work because it's like a balloon. You squeeze it on one side, it's going to, it's going to inflate farther on the other. So the bigger picture to me is there's another lack of creative thinking because the same approach we've been taking, and, and there's almost an exhaustion and normalization with the kinds of policies that the Americans in particular have prescribed to combat the scourge of drugs that hasn't worked. And yet we continue to do it. And one of the reasons I did this book was to leave a marker of what the cost actually is, what it looks like, because there is no more violent approach than the Mexican Marines going in and executing people who are involved in organized crime. And yet that hasn't changed anything. You can argue whether it's like limited violence or whether it's kept a check on things, but is that really what this is about, about just keeping a check on this? There's, there's got to be something that more cleverly solves it. This book is very specifically about two individuals and about cartels and that story. But does it fit into that broader, complicated relationship that the United States seems to have uh, with, with Central and South America? I mean, we can think of all kinds of uh, initiatives historically, whether it's Kennedy and the Alliance of Progress, the good neighbor policy, go, go all the way back to the Monroe Doctrine. That what, Why is it that, that the United States has this, this complicated relationship uh, with, with its near neighbor. I, mean, I think I would argue the United States has a pretty complicated relationship with its distant neighbors as well. But I, I know what you mean. But for example, it's a different relationship north to Canada than the one that it is south to Mexico. Sure, sure. That it is to Western Europe, that it is to Sub-Saharan Africa. I, I think the reason I wanted to tell the story the way that I did and didn't want to sort of pan the camera across Latin America, or even more broadly across the globe, was that to me, what is compelling about these violations of, you know, of social norms, these problems that people are living is the story. It is narrative. Narrative has the power to shake people from complacency. Narrative has the power to teach people something, or at least show them something they might actually understand. I didn't want to write a white paper. I didn't want to do an academic book or a treatise on the failure of US drug policy. I wanted to show what it looked, smelled, and felt like. I wanted it to be a literary narrative with an arc. And I wanted to imbue that narrative with all of the context that I could. But that story could be told from any number of countries. And I think, in particular, the United States relationship with Latin America is a complicated one because migration is, of course, a huge issue. Drugs are, of course, a huge issue. And yet, Latin America has kind of always been on the back burner. It's always sort of been this paternalistic relationship where the United States dictates the terms and everyone else follows them. But I do see that changing. I think as domestic politics become paramount in the United States, I think as foreign policy toggles between one crisis and another, what's happening in Latin America is the, the facts on the ground are changing. Governments no longer need the imprimatur of US approval. This could be said writ large globally that US kind of hegemonic behavior is on its wane because a lot of these countries, they don't, they don't look at it as the bright and shining city on a hill. And Latin America in some ways was one of the first regions that was under that influence, but is now increasingly moving out of it because I think they realize we have our own interests and the United States is no longer going to be the big brother in the world. So let's pursue them and worry less about 
pleasing or abiding by these rules that the United States themselves doesn't always follow. The book is Fear is Just a Word, A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and A Mother's Quest for Vengeance. It's written by my guest, Azam Ahmed, and published by Random House. But for now, Azam, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.